Thank you to our musicians. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to, uh, back to 1 John chapter 4, uh, where this morning we're going to endeavor to conclude our study there with part 3 of our sermon titled, Don't Be So Gullible. Now, uh, you'll recall that, that I gave this chapter that heading uh, because in it, John calls his readers uh, to be on guard and to test or to weigh the value, the genuineness of at least three specific groups or entities. First, he called them to test the spirits. You know, rather than just wholesale acceptance of the world and the present evil age, uh, John's readers are to hold all things up to the standard of the gospel, all things up to the standard in the, of the person and the work of Christ. John assures us that, that the spirit of the Antichrist, he does it multiple times in this book, but that the spirit of the Antichrist is very much alive and well out in the world. Uh, and so we would do well to be wary. Uh, we would do well to be on guard. We can't be gullible enough to just buy into the lie that says that, that Satan and his forces are not, even through the good things of the world, trying to do us harm. Satan has been a liar from the beginning. He, he hates God, and therefore he hates God's people. Uh, and so we must test the spirits. We, we must test this world that is following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, that leads us perfectly into what we saw the last time, which was we are to also test other people. And we said that when we say that, what we don't mean is that we are to you know, discriminate or, or we're to... Uh, uh, to isolate ourselves from non-believers. Uh, rather, it was just a, a recognition of what Scripture says, that, that in God's grand narrative, there really are only two kinds of people. There are those who are for him, uh, those who follow Christ, and there are those who are against him. That There is no middle ground. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please the Lord. And so no matter how good a person's acts may be, no matter how good their intentions may be morally or otherwise, apart from faith, they are on the side of the enemy. And so we as God's people, we must test as far as we can, which, is, which admittedly is limited, the fruit of a person's life. Uh, fruit that, that is the necessary result, Scripture says, of true faith. Uh, most fundamentally, we said that, that we test their theology. You know, what do they believe, specifically about the person and work of Christ? Uh, but then we also consider how they speak. You know, what are the words that they use? How, how do they listen? Do they listen to, to truth, to, to what we say? And then finally, we consider how a person loves. Do they love it all? And if they do, is it a love rooted uh, not in the world, uh, but in Christ and in Scripture? Uh, for our spiritual health and safety, for the spiritual health and safety of the church, uh, John calls us to test other people. So we test the spirits, we test people, and then finally today, lest we think that we're you know, sort of high and mighty and that we don't have a role uh, to play in this testing ourselves, we recognize here that John calls God's people to, to look inwardly, 
uh, to test themselves really by a lot of the same standards that we've already considered. But before we jump right in, let's read together the, the passage as before us, and let's ask God for his help in leading us as we move through it. So 1 John chapter 4, we're going to read 7 through 21. Let's hear God's word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected within us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because he is, also, because he is so also are we in this world. Just as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, may your word, uh, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, May it cut now to our hearts and reveal to us the thoughts and intentions that dwell there. Uh, Father, lay us bare so that we might draw ever closer to your side through the work of your Holy Spirit and through the abiding presence of Christ in our lives. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if I were uh, to have subtitled our sermon today, I might would have called it something like, abiding in God, our love and fear and wonder, because those are the subjects that John draws our attention to, and that those are the subjects that we're going to consider uh, as we move through this passage. Uh, but again, I want to make it clear, and I want to remind you that the overarching emphasis, the, the thing that I'm really trying to get us to focus our minds on here is this idea of testing, uh, specifically testing ourselves to see if we are, one, truly resting in Christ, and two, living lives that are consistent with that position. Uh, you know, for, for many years, I was a person who was opposed to all things coffee. Uh, I didn't like the look of coffee. I didn't like the taste of it. And frankly, I had, or at least I felt like, I had no need for it. While everybody else was drinking their morning coffee, I drank my morning unsweet tea, and I did it with a sense of pride and maybe even a little bit of arrogance. Um, but then one day, uh, after the responsibilities of life had sort of piled up and the need for a, a much more potent source of caffeine became very apparent, I realized something. 
I didn't really know if I liked coffee or not. Sure, I, I had tried it when I was a kid, but, you know, what does a kid know? Um, I, I had not tried it in long enough that I really didn't know if I liked coffee or not. I needed to, to test to see where I really stood with it. Well, test I did, and what I found was that however unintentionally, I had been living a lie. Uh, in fact, now, some six and a half years later, I love most things coffee. I love the smell of coffee, the taste of coffee, coffee mugs, coffee ice cream. Coffee ice cream is the best. It's all amazing. And yet for years, I missed out. Uh, I, I stood on the wrong side. Again, I was living a lie all because I had failed to test where I really stood. Well, friends, as we look out over the landscape of Christianity. We see so many on both sides of the aisle who fall into this mistake. Uh, there are, of course, those who hate Christianity, who claim uh, to be opposed to it in every way, yet they've never truly tested the, the merits of it. They, they've never tested the values, the truth of what we claim to believe as, Christ as Christians. You know, we've considered those types of folks over the course of the last two weeks, and so we won't do it again, but we recognize the truth that those folks are out there. At the same time, though, there are also those, particularly those in the South, where Christianity and Christian morals are still a normal and valued part of society, at least somewhat, who have been a part of the church their whole lives, yet who have never tested the genuineness of their faith. Sure, they may be third or fourth generation Christians. They may come from a long line of believers. Sure, they have gone through all the right motions, and sure, they might even claim with their mouths to be Christians, but they have never really tested to see the genuineness of their faith. They, they've rode the wave of Christianity, but they've never really seen if they bear the fruit of Christianity. Much like my experience with coffee, they claim to be one thing, but they really don't know if that claim is true because they've never tested it. Now, friends, you, you've heard me say this many times, but I truly believe that, that this spirit of nominal Christianity it is one of, if not the greatest threat facing the church here in Mississippi, here throughout the Bible Belt. And I may be wrong about this, but I'm also afraid that this is the greatest issue that faces Reformed and Presbyterian churches. You know, we rightly emphasize the sovereignty of God in all things, that he is in control of all things, but often we do so at the expense of calling people to true conversion, to, to calling people to true faithfulness, to a true pursuit of holiness and the things of God. Certainly, God is in control of all things, but his control of all things does not destroy our responsibility. And it does not destroy our obligation to live the Christian life well, to live as he has called us to live. No, if anything, his control establishes the need for those things. 
Because it is through those things, conversion, the Christian life, that God uses. He uses those means to show us the genuineness, the reality of our profession, to show that our profession is true. Christianity, it must have an effect on our lives. And so, because that's true, uh, there are ways that we can test it. And John gives us a few of those here. And so, with the time we have left, I want us to consider those, and I want us to see how we, as God's people, can test ourselves. So, the first thing in this passage I want you to notice, not surprisingly, is the test of love. Now, we said last time that it seems almost every week in our study of 1 John, we've had to consider love, and I warned you that we were going to have to consider it again today. But it's clear throughout this book that John is emphasizing the place, the importance, the foundational nature of love in the Christian life. In order to be a Christian, we must display this reality in our lives. Now, we've considered what this love sort of looks like, how it differs from the world. But today I want to ask the question, why is this such a foundational piece of Christianity? Why is John, in a book that is only five chapters long, going to such great lengths to emphasize it? Why does he he bring it up over and over and over again? Well, it's because John knows that Christian love is not just a warm and fuzzy feeling. Nor is it something that that we work up in ourselves. You know, what he's calling us to is not, hey, you just start loving people better than you did before. That's not the kind of love that he has in mind here. No, Christian love is rooted not in us, but it is rooted in the character of the triune God. And as those who are the children of God, as those who are in Christ, those who have the Holy Spirit living in us, because we are in God, love must be the reality of who we are as well. Notice there in verse 7, he says that, that love is from God. So this love that we're talking about, it proceeds forth from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But then he goes and he takes it a step further there in verses 8 and in verse 16. Love is not simply from God, but he says there that God is love. In other words, love proceeds from God because central to his divine being, at the heart of who he is, again, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in perfect communion for all of eternity, at the heart of that relationship is love. Now look, when we say God is love, to be sure that is a statement in our day and time especially that needs much in the way of explanation, much in the way of clarification. Because the world will say to us, oh see, you Christians have got it all wrong. If God is love, then that means he can't allow suffering. That, that means he can't demand of me something I don't want to do or something I don't want to be, and he certainly cannot condemn people to an eternal judgment. In other words, they want to say to us, God is less an all-consuming fire and more a lovable pushover grandfather who lets you do and get away with whatever you want. Now look, when the world presents these types of arguments to us, 
they are difficult. But we need to wrestle with them. The problem of suffering and pain. The reality of judgment and hell. Those are realities that are not easily dis- dismissed or, or, or swept away. We need to be prepared to address those things. But I want you to notice at the heart of the world's use of these verses that say that God is love are two glaring misconceptions. The first one is the definition of love generally. Now we talked about this last time and so we won't do it again today. But the reality is is what the world calls love is not biblical godly love. They want to project this image of worldly love onto God, but his love is fundamentally different. It's true love. It's faithful love. It always seeks the good of of the other person, even if the good is not what they want. It is a different kind of love. Not only that, but this misconception occurs because they have a wrong view of the person of God. In short, uh, and this is going to take us a minute to work through, so stick with me here. In short, they, they try to make God like us by dividing him into parts. Now, what I mean by that is, is you know, as humans, we are a whole host, a collection of characteristics and attributes, right? And usually we are more of our attributes or characteristics than we are of others. So, for example, uh, you may be uh, loving, you may be creative, you may be just, you may be angry, you may be any of those things, and we'll say, oh, you know, so-and-so is joyful. And what we mean by that is we're saying that so-and-so displays joy in their lives more than they display other characteristics, uh, more than other attributes, But notice here, God is not simply loving, God is love. Just as he is spirit, just as he is holy, just as he is just. In other words, to put it in theological terms, God is simple. And what we mean by that is not that he's easy to understand, but what we mean is that he is not divided. He is not a compounded being made up of various parts. He is God, and he is his attributes completely and wholly all the time. He is always love. He is always holy. He is always spirit. He is always just without waver. Now, I say all of that to say that what that means is that God's love and his holiness and his justice, they cannot be opposed to one another that they cannot work against or off or play off of one another at any point. God's love demands holiness. It demands justice. Just as his holiness demands love and justice, and just as his justice demands holiness and love. The question is, how can that be? How can perfect love, perfect holiness, and perfect justice all stem from one being? Well, friends, the the simple answer is, I don't know. But the answer is made clear in 1 John 3.16 and in 1 John 4.10. 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love, we know what real love looks like, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us. And then 1 John 4.10 
And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Friends, God's character, the truth of what I'm trying to explain to you, is revealed and it finds its clearest expression in Christ at the cross. It is there where perfect love is on display. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. It is there that perfect holiness is on display. Christ, the sinless Savior, God's holiness being poured out. And it is there that perfect justice is on display. It pleased God to crush him. God made him, 2 Corinthians 5, who knew no sin to be sin. Paul, he sums it up well in Romans chapter 3 and in verse 21. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to, uh, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And here it is in verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. God is both. He is just he is holy, but he is also loving. He is both just and the justifier, Paul says. And so my point here is this, this is love. This is what real love, true, genuine Christian love looks like. It is that love of 1 Corinthians 13. It's patient, it's kind, it's holy, and it's just. This is the character of our God, and it's his character that is the test of genuine Christian love. This is the test that we are to hold ourselves up against. When, God, when John calls us to love the brothers, the standard is not the world's. It's not our own hearts. The standard is God himself and what he has demonstrated to us. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then verse 19, we love, why? Because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brothers, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, whom he, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now look, to be sure, uh, this standard is a high standard. It, it's, a, it's a standard that causes us to cry out, who can attain to these things? Who can do it? And the answer is that none of us this side of glory can or will do it. Yet, that does not change the standard. It does not change the fact that he is, even now, in our hearts, making this kind of love the reality of the life of the church. He's making this kind of love the reality of his people's lives as well. So I ask you, do you love other Christians? Is your love for them a godly, Christ-like love? One that, that does not compromise holiness or justice or truth? 
John says, and Jesus says, this is the test. This is how we know we love as God who first loved us. We, we love others. The test of love. Now that directly leads us to the second test I want us to see, which is the, the test of orthodoxy. Uh, love does not compromise holiness. It does not compromise justice. And it also does not compromise truth. Uh, biblical, scriptural, godly truth. And at the heart of truth, of course, is the, the person and the work of Christ. You see that there in verses 9 and 10. Then you see it there again in verses 13 through 15. And you've seen this throughout John's gospel, or little epistle, right? He has called us over and over again to see uh, with reality who Jesus truly was And you know that I would love nothing more than to spend the rest of our afternoon all the way up through the hanging of the greens just unpacking this point, talking about the, the person and the work of Jesus. And to be sure, this is a point that would demand that sort of time. But obviously, we don't have that, that sort of time available to us right now. So let me simply ask you this. Do you believe, and this is the kind of orthodoxy that, that John is pointing us to, do you believe that Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of the Father who has been and always will be upholding all things by the power of his word? Do you believe that, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? Do you believe that, that he was and is one person with two natures, divine and human, who is, as the second Adam, perfectly fulfilling and fulfilled God's law and lived the sinless life that none of us can live? Do you believe that he, the spotless lamb, went to the cross as a substitute for sinners to stand in their place and to bear the wrath of God that their sins deserved? Do you believe that the Father, in his great love for us, sent his Son to be, as John says here, the propitiation for our sins? And do you believe that he rose on the third day a real bodily resurrection to newness of life? You believe that God declared his son's sacrifice worthy through that resurrection. And you believe that the son is even now ascended, seated at the right hand of the father, interceding on our behalf, the behalf of his people. You believe that he will judge the living and the dead, that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords now and forevermore. Do you believe that he is the only truth and way and life, that there is no other way to the father? And are you resting in him alone for salvation? Friends, those are the questions. That's the heart of the matter. I encourage you not to leave this place. Don't face eternity without answers to those questions. You may have gone to church your whole life. You may be that third or fourth generation Christian. But if you can't answer these questions with surety and with conviction... And friends, it's not simply orthodoxy that is at stake, but it is the eternal destination of your soul. So, who is Christ? As he has been revealed in Scripture, are you resting in him today? It's the test of orthodoxy. And then finally in this passage, I want you to notice the test of hope. We, we are to love, we are to hold orthodox belief and we are to have a sure hope because God is love, because Christ is the Son who has taken our sins from us. 
Christians are those who can stand in the midst of a lost and dying world, and we can do so uh, without moving. We can do so, again, with a hope that is, first, confident. He says there, we have this, this confidence, confidence in who we are, children of God, abiding in the Father, confidence in where we're headed, that this life is not the end, not just headed to death, but we're headed to an eternity with him, to be with him forevermore. Confidence that when that day comes, we'll be able to stand on that final day of judgment, not because we are worthy, but because we are in Christ who is worthy. As God's people, we know that though we have not seen him, as he says in verse 12, a day is coming where we will see him face to face, and we won't shrink away from him because we have confidence to stand before him because we stand in Christ. Notice, we don't shrink away because there's also no fear in Christ, no fear of Satan, no fear of the world, no fear of the wrath of God because Christ has removed it all from us. Paul says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We do not fear, and we have hope, a hope that is being perfected. Uh, Christ is transforming our lives. He is making us into what we will be completely on that day of his return. Perfecting our hope, perfecting our, our morality, perfecting our actions, perfecting our love, making us like him. In him, friends, we are not shaken. In him, we find peace and rest. In him, we find confident, fearless, perfecting hope. And so I ask you, do you know this sort of hope today? Well, it's cold and our time is up. But we have seen the way that God's people are to test themselves. Over the course of what has been three fairly long sermons, we've seen the test of, of the spirits, the, the test of others, and the test of ourselves. And in and of ourselves, we test our love, we test our orthodoxy, and we test our hope. Now, as we draw this, this study to a close, uh, let, me, let me step back and give us sort of a thought or two that hopefully will draw it all together. Um, my goal here in these three sermons, and really I think John's goal with, with 1 John chapter 4, um, has been to try to call us out of the complacency, out of the, the nominalism that, that we seem to fall into so easily. You know, the, the threat of false teachers, the, the dangers of coasting through the Christian life, they're just as real today, maybe more so than they were in John's day. As the church, as God's people, friends, we have to be on guard. We have to be awake to the realities around us. That means whether it's with the spirits or others or with ourselves, we have to test. We have to hold all things up to Christ. To not do so opens ourselves up to the, to the threat of Satan and to compromise with the world. You know, in the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus calls his followers to be ready. 
not to be complacent, not to be found unready on that day of his return. So friends, I will ask you, as we conclude all of this long thought, if Christ were to return today, would you be found ready? Would you be found to have tested and seen the genuineness of your faith? It says don't be gullible enough to just fall into the lies of the world. Let's test. The tests are before us. So let's use them through the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to be found resting in him as we pray together. Father God, uh, we are thankful for your love, a uh, love that you have shown to us in Christ, a love that you have lavished on us freely apart from our works, apart from anything that we have done. Uh, and Lord, we pray that we would love others in that same sort of way. Uh, teach us what Christian love is. Teach us what true love is. Uh, help us to, to be a people who are marked by love. Uh, and Lord, certainly, uh, if we are resting in you, resting in Christ, uh, then there can be no other option. Uh, we must be a people who are a loving people. So, Lord, make us that. Uh, Lord, we pray for those who don't know you. We pray for those who don't know your truth. Lord, work in their hearts. and Help us to be a part of that as the means that you use to spread the gospel. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Stephen. May we all be able to confirm together, amen, I believe.